Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 101. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have the seventh degree black belt in judo, Jimmy Pedro. Jimmy is a four-time U.S. Olympian and has won two bronze medals, one in 1996, the other one in 2004. Jimmy owns and operates Pedro's Judo Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts, and is the president of Fuji Mats and vice president of Hatashita Fuji Sports. It was a great interview with many useful takeaways. He shared parts of his Olympic journey and the mindset necessary to becoming an Olympic athlete. Incredible commitment. When I asked him about one of the best pieces of advice that he has ever received, his answer inspired me to title this episode, The Mindset is Everything. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on this topic, sharing with you a powerful Kobe Bryant audio. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Jimmy Pedro. Jimmy is a seventh degree black belt in judo. He's a four-time U.S. Olympian and has won two bronze medals, one in 1996 and the other in 2004. In 1999, he became the second American to win the judo world championships. He's also a world-renowned coach and served as the head coach for the 2012 and 2016 U.S. Olympic team helping Kayla Harrison earn back-to-back -back gold medals, as well Travis Stevens earn a silver medal in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. Jimmy graduated from Brown in 1994 with a degree in business economics. Today, Jimmy owns and operates Pedro's Judo Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts, and is the president of Fuji Mats and the vice president of Hatashita Fuji Sports. Jimmy is married and a proud father of four children, Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Gustavo. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So I was mentioning before, this is the first judo guest, and I'm super excited. I started with judo before jiu-jitsu, matter of fact, and, and then eventually found jiu-jitsu. But yeah, let's talk about how judo show up in your life, how martial arts show up in your life. So I, I was literally born right into the sport. You know, my dad was a judo coach. He owned a dojo in uh, PBD, Massachusetts. And ever since I was two years old, I just grew up as a mat rat. You know, I went to the dojo in diapers and I saw my dad teaching classes and I would walk around the mats and, you know, play with kids that didn't have partners and just kind of grew up. And so that all my visuals as a young boy was, was just grappling. 
you know, and kids doing grappling and my dad training athletes really, really hard. Went to all the code, you know, all the competitions uh, as a little boy and watched the big guys compete and black belts compete. And, you know, when I was five years old, that's when I officially sort of got my start where my dad said, okay, now you start training, you have to come to practice, you know, two nights a week, you know, and, and stay on the mat for an hour and a half and, and start your judo training. And then I started competing at the age of six, you know, in, in local competitions. And we went to the national championships every year as a young kid. Um, our family vacations, you know, we weren't, a, we weren't a rich family. You know, we lived a pretty simple life, came from a pretty rough town. And, you know, we, our family vacation was wherever the nationals was, if we could drive there, we'd go compete, we'd stay a couple extra days, and that was our family vacation. But judo was just a part of my life. It was a fabric of our, of our family. You know, my dad was a judo black belt. He trained athletes. He became, uh, he was an Olympic uh, trials qualifier. He took second in the Olympic trials. He didn't make the team. Uh, was a national ranked competitor for a lot of years. He didn't start judo till he was 19. So it was hard for him to catch up to the kids who had done it since a, a little boy. But, you know, he with work ethic and, and learning and being a student of the game, he became, became a great uh, athlete. But more importantly, he's probably one of the best coaches in the world in the sport of judo. If you look at the pedigree of, of athletes that, that he helped me, you know, help produce, help me produce. I mean, Kayla and Travis and Rhonda and me and all of the Olympians that came from our program, they wouldn't have been as successful without the influence of my father. That's so incredible. It's a big family. That's incredible. And when you look back, and you've been training since two years old. So, how do you feel judo relates to life? Listen, I, I am the person I am today from the sport of judo, without question. Everything, you know, the obvious things like, you know, hard work, perseverance, humility, respect for others, uh, finding ways to do things better. You know, not necessarily uh, faster, but finding ways to do things better, constantly learning, picking up new things, you know, being able to face challenges, face adversity, you know, uh, lose, um, you know, and overcome all those things with, with, you know, hard work, dedication, perseverance. Um, obviously, you can't succeed in any sport and you can't succeed in life without being mentally tough. You know, I think that one of the things I tell a lot of people is that you always hear people's successes. You always see, especially now in the day of social media, you, you have instant access to everybody who's successful, right? So you see all these pictures of people on podiums, wearing medals, showing how big their house is and, you know, what their cars look like, how much money they have. But every successful person struggled, failed, had losses had to overcome adversity, wanted to quit. You know, nothing comes easy in this life. And, you know, I really wish more people would share their, their down times. You know, the times when they also doubted themselves and thought that, is this really worth it? You know, am I ever going to make it? You know, is, does, does this journey have a silver lining at the end of it? You know, and, and I think what I've learned over time is that it's important to let, as you're inspiring and leading others, it's important to let them know that you're human, that you didn't always succeed, that you suffered, that you overcame hard adversity, you know, that, that it's normal, you know, for, for people to question whether they can make it through the end or not, you know, and, and I think that allows people to understand, you know what, 
Sensei, I feel like that a lot. Like that's happened to me too. I understand, but you never quit. You didn't give up. And ultimately, whether we succeed or not in our sport, I believe that all of the characteristics that you learn along the way, that toughness, that digging deep, like helps you get through anything in life. There's nothing in life I don't think I can accomplish. doesn't matter what it is. I know I'll find a way. And I know that it's not, it's not going to be from lack of commitment, lack of dedication, from being outworked. I'll find a way to make it happen. And that's kind of the way I live my life. Incredible. And do you remember when it was the time of your life that you said, you know what? Um, I'm pursuing judo. I'm really doing this. Most likely I'm doing this for a living, you know, because again, it came so early in your life and you've seen all that. So when did you realize that? Right around when I was 16 or 17 years old, you know, as I, I, I matured late, I, I didn't, you know, reach puberty and develop as a young man until I was about 16 years old. I was really small and undersized until then. And a lot of my peers grew fast and were bigger and stronger physically. So for me to compete with, with people that had already hit maturity when I was a young boy, it was kind of an awkward time and I didn't have success. I lost my first national championships when I was 14 years old. I didn't place in the tournament. It was devastating for me, but it was that time around maturity. And once I hit maturity, once I decided, you know, once I started becoming a man, I started like getting stronger and seeing that you know, I had the ability to, to be world-class or, or at least be on the Olympic team. I was really around 16 or 17 because at that time, I was competing with the best men in this country and the best men in the world. I wasn't winning the fights, but I was competitive and I was giving them a real run for their money, you know, and, and having really close matches with the guys that were meddling in the Olympics. So at that time, I said, man, if I really dedicate myself to this, I can be successful. And how old were you when you went to the first Olympics? I was 21. Okay. How did you do on that one? Good. I mean, I had, it's obviously, it was a disappointment for me because um, I had the gold medalist in the Olympic game was a Brazilian by the name of Sampaio. So he won the 65 kilogram. Rogério Sampaio? Rogério, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he, he, um, he won the gold medal that day. And it was disappointing for me because he's somebody in my career that I never lost to. You know, I beat him before the Olympics. I beat him after the Olympics. Man. I have an undefeated record against him. And to see him on the top of the podium, when I, you know, know in my heart of hearts that it's a guy that I can beat, he just had a better day. You know, so and it was the same with the silver medalist and the bronze medalist. So leading up to the Olympics, even though I was only 21, I had beaten all the medalists. And... The Olympic Games for me was a little bit unfortunate. I won my first two fights. Um, you know, I threw the, I actually threw the first guy. I barred the second guy. And in the third round, I was supposed to be one of the seeded athletes. I was supposed, I had taken third place in the world championship the year before. So I was supposed to be one of the top four seeds. But the Japanese sent somebody else. So they had a silver medalist from the Olympics. I'm sorry. They had a silver medalist from the world championships the year before, but they didn't send them to the Olympics. They changed their guy. And so that Japanese guy, instead of being seated in the other quarter of the bracket, he was in, he was on my side right away. And it was somebody back then, we didn't have videos. We didn't have online anything. I had never seen this guy before from Japan. So I'd never fought against him. I had never seen him in any tournaments. I didn't know his style. I didn't know what he did. And I only saw him fight one fight at the Olympics and he, he threw the guy a free phone and 
real quick. So I didn't even know like how he played judo. So in the match, when I went out and I, and I grabbed the gi, he caught me right away with the, for a score, you know, a small score. And the rest of the fight was just going after him and dragging him around and beating him up. But there was just, I got, I got him three penalties, but the three penalties just wasn't enough to win the fight. So he ended up, I ended up losing to him. And because he was so tired, he ended up losing his next fight against Cuba. He couldn't fight anymore because the match with me wow. went so long and was so hard. And he had to come up 10 minutes later, he had to fight against the Cuban. He never recovered. And that eliminated me from the tournament. I needed him to win for me to keep fighting for a medal. But so I beat my, I actually took myself out of the tournament. I should have just lost easy. <laughs> so it was really a frustrating Olympics for me, you know, because I had seen who was on the podium and I knew that I was capable of that. So one of the things uh, that I want to learn a little bit more about your mindset is I think the thing that impressed me the most with Olympic athletes, any sport, okay, is that, for example, in jiu-jitsu, you have our Olympics in jiu-jitsu, let's say, is the world championship. Okay, you competed, didn't work. Next year, yeah, you get to sign up again or we're not. Now, man, in the Olympics, you're like, okay, buddy, in four years, you get another shot. How you keep your mindset, your patience for four years, and you did that multiple times, I cannot even imagine that kind of the mindset needed for that, for that long of commitment. It's really, really difficult. I'm not going to lie to you. It's really difficult because on top of that, not only do you have to wait four years, but you actually have to win the Olympic yes. trials. You, there's only one guy. That gets back in my day, it was only one guy that got to go to the Olympics. You had to beat everybody else in a one day tournament. So you had to wait four years. Then you had to like have your best performance against the best guys. You had to win the trials. Then you got the opportunity to compete in the Olympics. So that was a long, tough, hard journey. There's no question. Um, for me, I was somebody in my career who, once I achieved something, I figured that the next time was automatic. I would do it again. I've already broken through. I'm going to, like, that's a given. So when I won my first national championship, you know, that was a big deal. I was 18 years old. I won the national championships. I beat the Olympians that had made the, the team um, years before me. So once I beat them, I said, hey, nobody's stopping me from making the Olympic team. I just beat the guys, you know, who already went. So for me to make the Olympic team was, I got to do this, you know? And then once I made the team one time, but I didn't medal, my mindset was, well, I'm going to make the team again. That's a guarantee. Now I got to go win a medal. You know what I mean? So it was always like, and what kept me motivated was I always in my career wanted to be the best guy in the world. I wanted to be world champion and I wanted to be Olympic champion. Those are the two tournaments where you can prove yourself as being the best guy in the world. And so that's what kept me motivated every day is not just making the team, not just being the Olympian, not just participating or winning a medal in the world of the Olympics. I really wanted to be the gold medalist, the best, the number one guy. And that's what motivated me every day. What was your last Olympics? What year? 2004. How was the mindset going in to it and after? So it, I, I'm going to take you back four years before that. Okay, because in 1999, 
I was the world champion in judo. I was the second male to ever win the world championships. And to date, I'm still the only, there's only been two men that have won the worlds in judo, me and Mike Swain. Um, in 99, I was world champion. So which meant going into the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, I was the favorite to win the gold, you know? And I had done everything right. I trained, I, I didn't, I felt amazing going into 2000. I beat everybody in the world for four years. I think I had like three losses in four years in the sport of judo. Like wow. I won every competition. I had just, I was ready to win in Sydney and all of the media was there. Everybody thought I was going to be the first gold medalist in the Olympics. And I was 29 years old. I felt on top of the world. Nobody can stop me. And then when I went to fight in the Olympics, my very first match was against Korea, a guy from Korea. And he had taken uh, fifth place in the world championships the year before. So he was a good player. I had fought him before. I beat him once. He beat me once. I knew it wasn't going to be an easy match. But for whatever reason, once I stepped out on the mat, I was not physically something wasn't right. Like inside, it wasn't nerves. It wasn't anything. But looking back, I think I, the, I realized that it had to do with my blood sugar levels. Because Sydney, Australia was the only competition in the world ever that was different than any other event. Meaning, the, because of the time zone difference and because of television back in America, we didn't fight or start the competition until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Sydney time. Normally, the way judo competitions go, you wake up in the morning like 6 o'clock, you step on the scale 7, you eat breakfast, you get on a bus, you start fighting 9 o'clock in the morning. That's how every tournament in the world goes. 9 a.m. you start. At this Sydney Olympics, you wake up 6, you weigh in 7 o'clock, you'll have breakfast. But now you have to wait 7 hours before you can go to the venue and go fight. So I was in my normal routine. I'm big into routines. But we had to catch the bus like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I didn't eat lunch. Because I wasn't used to eating lunch before I fight in a tournament. I'm used to eating breakfast. This is my pre-competition meal. This is how I fuel my body. I warm up. I go fight. And that was different. It took me out of my routine. And I think not having lunch and having really low blood sugar for the first fight, it was a hard fight. I lost by like a one penalty point. I got a penalty point. He got none. I lost on a penalty in my first match in Sydney. I lost. I was supposed to win the gold. I lost my first fight. After that, I competed five more times. I won five matches. I set myself up to go win the bronze at least and save the day. And in the bronze medal match, I lost. I got thrown free poem by the guy from Belarusia. So I, I came home sitting with no medal. That's a like, rough day. Oh. You have to understand, like, Man. September 18th was my wife's birthday. My wife, Maria. It's her birthday, September 18th. The day I fought in Sydney, September 18th. I thought the planets are aligned. I'm going to give her a gold medal for her birthday. I'm feeling amazing. I trained so hard for that event. I was ready for everything. And then I failed. I didn't win nothing. And, you know, at the time, I had three children already. I decided that was going to be my last tournament ever. So I retired after that. I came home. I started working a job. But every night, Gustavo, every night I went to bed, I had a sad heart. Like, I just felt like, like failure. I felt like I didn't accomplish in life what I set out to do. And I lived like that for like two years where it bothered me a lot. Like knowing I lost, knowing I failed, 
And, you know, I went to work every day. I worked a job like one hour away. I was working in a, in a, uh, for a company doing marketing and online marketing and sports related marketing stuff. And I learned a lot on that job. Um, I learned from a lot of smart guys, a lot about internet marketing and sports marketing and that sort of stuff. But, and then I would drive right after that job. I drive an hour to my dojo. I teach class for three hours. I teach my elite students and try to get them ready for the next big competitions. I go home like 10 o'clock at night. I wake up the next day, do my weightlifting or running, go to work all day. And I did that for like two years. And then one day I said to my wife, I, I watched the uh, Olympics in, in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. It was in America. I watched the Olympics. And after watching the Olympics, I called my wife. I said, Marie, I got to do this one more time. Like, I cannot, I cannot. Like, I'm still young enough. I know I can still do this thing. Please, let, let me come back and try one more time for 2004. And I'm Jimmy. This was going to come. Go ahead and do it. Family, like, she was so supportive of that. And what I, what I realized when I came back, Gustavo, I realized how much I appreciated the sport of judo, how much I appreciated the struggle, the journey, the training, the competition, the camaraderie, the, the freedom to follow your dream. Because when you're an athlete, it's all about you. Like it's your goal. It's your training. If you want to succeed, you put it, you put in as much work as you want. You get as good as you can get. And then in the end, it's up to you to perform and it's all on you. But as a coach, I had coached for two years. I was trying to motivate other people. And no matter how much effort I put into them, if they don't go fight, if they don't go and compete to their potential, then they don't win. And as a coach, it was, it was a struggle watching my athletes not have success when I couldn't control the outcome. And so when I started competing again, I really loved it. I enjoyed it. I had fun. For a, I had so much fun on the road back to the, to the uh, Athens Olympic Games that I made the finals of every single tournament I fought in between, even after the comeback, it was, I took first or second in every single tournament until the Olympic Games in, in uh, Athens, Greece. And that was 2004. I ended up, I ended up finishing. I had seven fights. Uh, I ended up winning two matches, losing in the third round to the, the gold medalist, and then won four more straight, beat the guy who beat me in Sydney. And he, he won the bronze. I beat him first match. I won four in a row and I ended up winning a, a bronze medal in the Olympics. And it just made me so happy to finish on the podium, knowing that I, I gave it and took the chance and made it one more time because, you know, like you said, you have to wait four years. First, you got to qualify. Then you got to step on the mat. And if you don't win, you know, there's no guarantee that anything's going to happen. But I had to give it one more shot in the end. I came out with the medal. I was, it was a good ending to my career. Man, this is incredible. And when was the moment that then you start to kind of gravitate towards the entrepreneurial area? So how was that transition in the mindset that you're using, the using judo your whole life in competition and how you started to implement that in entrepreneurship? Again, you know, I've, I've got a really good supportive wife who, who's always thinking about me and my family and, and our happiness. And she's really selfless. And 
after the Olympics in 2004, after I won my medal, I went back to my job, but in marketing. But the problem was that the company had changed significantly because it was after September 11th, the disaster in September 11th. It affected the whole world economy. My job had changed a lot. It, they got rid of all of their sports sponsorships. So what was exciting to me is that the job I was working in when I got originally hired was they sponsored the Olympics. They sponsored the NCAA championships. They sponsored the, the, the Red Sox and the New England Patriots. I had a lot of like sports marketing going on, which was fun and exciting for me. After I came back from the Olympics and after the economy had changed so much, they got rid of all the sports. And it was only about online marketing and metrics and data driven. And to me, it got boring. Right. And it wasn't what I loved to do. And my wife saw that I was very unhappy, like going to work every day, like, is this worth it? And she said, Jimmy, you know, just like in, in sport, you've got to take a risk. You've got to do what you love. Why don't you make judo in your business full time? Like, why don't you go after like your dojo and run it professionally? Why don't you get involved in something related to martial arts? And when it's your passion, you'll actually enjoy it. So I took a risk from a guaranteed salary, which I was getting from that company. And I jumped into my dojo full time. You know, and I decided to run my, it was going to be, I wanted to be the, one of the first judo dojos in the country that actually was a, a legitimate business. Because as you know, jujitsu, every school is professional. They charge good money, anywhere from 100 to $250 a month. They have professional coaching. They have hundreds of students. They get into merchandising and you can make a business out of jujitsu. But unfortunately, judo is not like that. There's not very many judo dojos in this whole country or even in the whole world that yep. do it as a business. It's a social sport, right? In Brazil, it's a social project. It's a social sport. It's like a boys club or a girls club. They keep the kids straight. They don't pay any money to do the practices. They get the geese for free. And that's the way judo has been in this country and in the world. So I wanted to be one of the first entrepreneurs who actually made it a business. So I studied and I learned from all of the, you know, other arts I learned from jujitsu guys. I learned from karate and taekwondo guys. I hired a mentor. I actually, you know, wrote a whole curriculum for my school. I broke down all my classes. I have little kids, you know, four, five, six. I have entry level basic classes. I have confident kid classes. I have advanced. So I broke it up to have a full program from four year olds to seven year olds and broken up by belt levels and, and training. When I did that and I opened my school, I started getting more and more students. You know, I started understanding, hey, they don't care if you learn a Kimura or a, or a Taiotoshi or an Uchimata. What the parents care about and what the people are coming for is, is my kid being respectful? Is he disciplined? Is he working hard? Is he learning valuable life lessons? Is that adult student learning how to you know, protect themselves? Are they getting better shape? Are they having fun? When you make it about like what the students want and deliver that experience, you're going to be successful as a business. So I saw my school and I've had a, I've had a, I had a judo dojo since 1997. So from 97 until 2004, I only had like 60 students. I could never break wow. past 60 because I had one size fits all. And I was only doing it a couple hours a night. I didn't have time to invest in the dojo. So once I made it a full-time job, I got up to 200 students, you know, I wow. changed my tuition rates from $65 a month, you know, to $150 a month. 
you know, and I went from 60 students to 200, you know, so I made judo my, my, my job. At the same time, I got an offer by a mat company, you know, to be a spokesperson. They said, Hey, will you represent our company and represent our brand? And we were looking for a, you know, a good high quality, you know, level athlete. And I said, sure, I can be a spokesperson, but I don't, I, no sense in me just putting your logo on, on my gi and on my stuff. You have an opportunity for me to make money. So they put me on as a sales agent, you know, and I was actually using my connections to generate sales for the company. And eventually I worked my way up to become the, the vice president, the second person in charge of the company. And I grew that and that company to what it is today. I helped grow that company into what it is today. And so between the mat business, my dojo, every, I started making DVDs. I started giving seminars. Like, man, I quadrupled my salary. I went from a really safe salary to making four times the money because now my whole day was dedicated to what I love, martial arts. And to me, that's not work. That's fun, you know? And so taking that initial risk really opened up Pandora's box for me. Yeah, that's incredible. And he, Here's the thing to give him props to you because there are a lot of people, Jimmy, who are listening to this podcast. They are in transition and in a moment that you were in your life. You have, a, uh, you have your, your side gig, kind of the jujitsu, but you have a job and they like, do I go all in? So there are a lot of people in that uh, transition. And it's uh, incredible, just the power of the decision. And there's a, a wonderful quote from Tony Robbins. It's in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped, you know? So yeah. you made a decision, you know what? I'm going all in. So now what I want you to share with the listeners is how was the mindset back then when you taking that leap? Because a lot of people think about it, but they're like, eh, no. So how was the mindset for you back then? You know, listen, I had, I told you I had three children, right? And the job that I was in paid for my health insurance. So I had my salary, Plus I had my benefits, you know, with health insurance, and that's very expensive. You know, I live in Massachusetts. It's one of the best medical areas in the, in the country. You know, medical insurance is expensive for a family of five, you know? And so that was like a thousand dollar a month decision right there. Can I give up and pay a thousand a month for health insurance and make up the money from the salary? But at the time I said, my, she said, I believe in you. You, you're a worker. You'll succeed in anything you do. Just put your mind to it and go. And I said, Are you sure? She said, yeah. And I did. That's when I said, okay, let's go. And, and again, I set my dojo up. I worked my butt off. Like I spent all day instead of working for did, you know, digital marketing and making money for somebody else. I spent it on myself, right? I wrote every single class. I wrote the structure of every class. This is what we're warm ups going to be. This is the technique we're learning. These are the drills we're doing broken down by the minute, you know, here's my 45 minute lesson plan. And I made these books for basic, intermediate, advanced students. Didn't matter what instructor showed up. This is what they're teaching today. And I wrote it all for them, you know? And so I invested, I mean, it took me a long time. You're writing a three and a half year, three and a half, four year plan to become a black belt from day one, a black belt, like every day, assuming somebody comes every single day to training, they do hit all the milestones. They pass all the tests. Here's what it looks like. That was a big endeavor, you know, to write that by myself, you know, and, and think about what I want a Jimmy Pedro black belt to look like. What skills, what techniques do they need to know? That was all me. I had to do all of that work, you know, and then 
also go there and market the dojo, give the experience to the customers, understand the importance of actually like having a meeting, you know, giving like an introductory lesson, explaining the programs that we have to offer, explaining the pricing, having people understand that this is a commitment. You know, you're not just going to pay 10 bucks to drop in the class. You want to be my student? You got to join for six months. I can change your life in six months. So you tell me what you want to learn. Why are you walking in this door? Is it self-defense? Is it fitness? Is it confidence? Is your kid getting bullied? Does he need focus? Like, what is the reason you're coming in the door? I'll, my program in six months will change your life. It'll make you the person you want to be. But if you quit in six months, I can't do it in two weeks. You got to give me six months. And in six months, you're going to feel better. You're going to look better. Your kid's going to be more confident. You're going to be in better shape. That's what you're here for. Sign on the dotted line and let's go. Like, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. And you know that as well as I do. That if people stay with training, if people really listen, it's a good school, right? We know that they're going to be stronger, more fit, more confident, more successful, more driven, motivated, et cetera, because they're around good people. And anybody that walked in the door and said, I want to beat people up. Okay, you go in this class. You're going to go in my class with my guys, and we'll show you what beating people up feels like. And then if you stay, good for you. <laughs> but those people never stay. So that's okay. We don't want them interacting with the regular folks, right? Yeah, perfect. So, it, you know, you create a culture at your school of positivity, and people will come. So when you went all in in your entrepreneurship uh, chapter, let's say, what did you say some of the biggest struggles that you've that you encountered during your entrepreneurial journey, and how uh, how did you deal with it? What did you learn from the struggle? And it could be whatever area you want. Could it be sales, marketing, uh, whatever you, something that comes to your mind with the struggle? You know, one of the things, one of the biggest struggles is is staff is employees. You have to find employees that are like you. You have to find other people that are motivated, that have the same work ethic, that have the same um, character that you have. That's very important because, and they have to believe in your, your mindset. They have mm-hmm. to, they have to not just follow, but they have to buy in to what you believe in. Believe in the vision. Yeah. You have to, number one, as a leader, you have to have the vision. You have to share with them what your vision is. Then you get them to buy in that, do you want to be a part of this journey as part of this vision? Yes. Okay. If so, then pick the like-minded people, not the people that are lazy, not the people that are going to make excuses. You know, you've got to, you've got to make sure you pick the right people and bring them in as part of your family. And when you do that, then you can create a successful team and you can work together to accomplish the goal. So one of the hardest parts was weeding out the people that don't fit because some of them are nice people that I've known for a long time, but they, they have their own mindset. They have their own way. They're, they're resistant to change. They don't want to be a part of this journey. So for example, my judo dojo, you know, the challenge was people told me that if you create a recreational school, right, where, you have 200 judo students. You cannot produce champions at that same school because it's too relaxed. It's too easy. You know, the, the, the culture, like in order to produce a judo champion or a high level athlete, 
you've got to work them, train them really, really hard. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to really push them to the next level, which means a lot of fighting, right? It means a lot of drilling, randori, and, and sparring. People don't like sparring, right? Most of the general public doesn't, they don't like it and they don't need it. So I had to find a way to do both under the same roof because I wanted to be a commercial dojo that made money, but I also wanted to produce champions. But I shared that vision with my staff. I said, guy, good money is professional when you can actually earn a living helping me run my school. And I want to produce champions. And it, it took a lot of discipline and structure of how I structured those classes and who I exposed what students to and when we did inspiring training versus recreational training and, and how they intermingled. And what I did was I created a community. So I had high level athletes come to my school like Kayla Harrison and, and um, Travis Stevens and Rick Hahn. And I had many, many you know, good Olympians that trained at my school. I actually asked all of them to give back to the school. I actually taught them how to teach judo. I wanted them to learn how I want judo taught and how every technique is done in my curriculum. So I actually had staff training and I taught all of them, this is how we do Uchimada. This is how we do Ippon Sayanagi. This is how we do all of this basic judo stuff. What it did was it reinforced for them it taught them a lot of new techniques that they were never exposed to because as an athlete, you only need like five or 10 techniques. You don't need to know 60 techniques, right? You have your five specialties and you win with five. So it opened their minds to all the more judo. It taught them the system that I was taught of how to go from one technique to the next technique and, and try to chain everything together so that there's a flow going both standing and mat work. And it also made them all better instructors. So that, and what I didn't realize, they started when they're like 15, 16, 17 years old, learning how to teach judo. Well, now, even when they're now they're Olympic champions or what have you, they actually know how to teach and break down a technique so they can make a living doing clinics and seminars and things like that. It's not just their technique. It's all of judo. They can teach everything, you know? So by teaching my staff and what I did was they all had to then teach one or two classes a week for me. They had to give back to the kids. And what, I, what that did was it made all the parents from the dojo want to support our elite athletes because, man, who doesn't want to have, you know, Kayla Harrison teaching their little 10-year-old girl and giving her confidence? You know, so when it came time to, like, doing fundraisers or events that were raising money for our elite guys, man, all the parents and all their kids came and helped out because they saw, like, what a great community. Sensei helps his athletes. His athletes help our kids. We give back by helping support Beautiful. them. And it became this big community of positivity. Then they get to follow all the athletes and all the tournaments and watch them win medals and titles. And man, what a great thing. We created something amazing. But along the way, we had people that, man, I don't want to charge people money to do judo. I don't think that's right. Well, then you're not a fit. You're going to have to go teach somewhere else. I'm sorry. You know, or... I want to show I want to show them how I do this special technique because I like to do it this way. I know you can't teach your technique at this school. You have to teach it this way. Everybody's got to be on the same page. This is how we do Ippon Seiranagi. There's no other way. Every student of mine should be able to do it this way because that's the way we deem as the correct way. You know, so I got all the senseis together. We bought into this is how we do. And then we taught. You know, so that's one example of, and even in my other businesses, the Fuji Mats business 
and Fuji sports business, any employee that I hire, it's not so much their education that's important. Like I said, it's the type of person that you're hiring, right? Do they have the same work ethic? Can you count on them? If you give them a responsibility, will they do it? You know, are they accountable? You know, when now look at, we're going to war right now, right? We've got to survive. We're at COVID-19 is just wreak havoc on everybody's business. We are in survival mode. I have a team with me who are helping me survive, right? They're fighters. So realistically, a lot of people that work for me at both Fuji Sports and Fuji Mats, they're black belts or they do judo or they do jujitsu or they run a school. Like they persevered, they've lost, they've suffered, they've got hard work. They've become like my family. You know, I can count on them for everything and vice versa. I can count on them for anything when we're a team and everybody just does their job. Nice. Now you have access and contact with so many entrepreneurs. Of course, um, a lot of school owners, but you're always dealing with all kinds of different entrepreneurs. So what do you say some of the struggles or mistakes that especially the beginner entrepreneurs make and you can see it? Sometimes you can give a tip or a suggestion or not, you know, but what you notice that a, a common mistake in the beginning? It varies business by business, right? But I would say probably one of the biggest mistakes is not making hard decisions early. Mm. So a lot of times we talked about like bad employees. If you find yourself talking about an employee too often, every week, every month, you're talking about the same person and you're trying to figure out like, you know, well, they did this and how do we get them to do that? If you're spending your time talking about an employee a lot, is not a right fit for your company. So you've got to, you have to know when to sort of let go and bring somebody else on board that's going to help you go in the right direction. So that's what I mean, making a hard decision. Like it, it is hard to just let somebody go, you know, if they're nice people because you, you, you care for it. We care for everybody as martial artists, pretty much. We care about others a lot. But at the same time, if you're doing it at the expense of everybody else, then it's actually a good decision because you're sacrificing one for... 10 others, you know? So making those decisions or not making those decisions, I guess is probably a big mistake that a lot of young entrepreneurs don't do. They don't get rid of the people that they, that they know they should quick enough. That's one. Um, you know, I think, I think also taking, taking chances is important. You've got to take chances and you've got to like take some risks and go for it. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, whether it's starting a new line of product, whether it's, you know, um, you know, spending money that you don't think you can, you know, you should spend right now. I mean, you've got to figure out, is it a wise decision or not? But the way I've always sort of found success is, is investing in people. So okay. for example, like you, Gustavus, right? You, you, if you came to Fuji Mats and you said, Hey, I'm going to do this jujitsu tournament. It's been my, my dream, my whole life. Um, please support me. I'd love to help your brand as well. Like, can we create some sort of partnership? You know, then I'd say to you, okay, let, let me help you. You help me. And we figure out a way to work together so that you can accomplish your goal of opening up a series of jujitsu tournaments. I can get some exposure for my brand, but it's not just about putting my logo on your mats. I want you to help me reach your audience and help me tell my story of what my company is about. You know, and I want it to be fully integrated where you're sending me photos of your events. 
You've got people taking videos at your events and sending it back to me. I'm promoting your tournament to all of my people. And hey, Gustavo is running a tournament in Arizona at this time. Like I'm sending out word, like we're sharing what we have with each other so that one and two equals five. You know, and, and I've always believed in investing and helping in people, whether it was their first gym that they opened and they remembered that I helped them do that, you know, in a way that was creative and in a way that, 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 you know, was memorable for them so that they then speak volumes about who I am as a person and what I did to help them. And then they tell other people and the referrals end up being the, the most valuable yeah. um, customers, right? Because you're, you're validated by somebody else. So I believe in helping people accomplish their goals and dreams. It's not always about money. You know, it's not about making money today as much as creating a legacy and creating a nice company that people can trust, you know, that people can come to when they need something and know that we're going to be here no matter what goes wrong, we're going to fix, you know, we're going to take care of whatever, whatever the issues are. Um, so I'd say the other thing, you know, with an entrepreneur is don't always make it about money and profit, you know, keep your business the same as your character. You know, if, if you hadn't, if you're a person with integrity, who doesn't lie, who doesn't cheat, who doesn't, you know, take advantage of people and you run your company the same way, it comes back. It shows through your true colors will show through in the end. And I always believed in like, if you got to spend some more money to fix the problem, it's better to do that because mm -hmm. word does spread quick. You know, that, that mm -hmm. you're a good company to do business with. Right on. You mentioned earlier that you're really big into routine, especially for you to get to the level that you're achieving. Of course, you have to be on point with your routine. So what did you say nowadays? What is one habit that you practice daily that is part, uh, it's part of your routine? So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a character of habit. I'm very ritualistic. I do everything almost the same all the time. Um, so every morning I work from home. I've worked for home, from home since 2005. I've been working out of a home office. So 15 years now, straight up, I go up to my attic every morning. I check my email. You know, first thing I do though, is I go out and I take a drive and I go get a cup of coffee. I could make coffee at home. I have a coffee maker at home. I could do that every day. But every morning I get in my car, I drive to the local Starbucks, I grab a simple, large, venti cup of coffee with just cream only. I drive home. It's like my commute to work. It's only two minutes away, but I go there, I pick up my coffee, I come back, and now I go upstairs to my office. And then I work every day, just like it was a normal job. I sit in front of my computer, do my emails, my phone calls, get back to people. No matter what, every single day, I have to do a workout. I have to do something physical. I built a weight room in my basement of my house. I took all the weights from my gym, gym that closed. I put it in my basement. I've got, a, you know, I got a squat rack. I've got a, a bicycle. I've got a treadmill. I've got a VersaClimb. I've got a rowing machine. I've got, you know, Olympic weights. I've got everything you need to get a workout in. And I go in my gym every single day and I do some physical conditioning. Some days it's running, you know, sometimes I go for runs out in the you know, neighborhood. Sometimes it's a lift downstairs, but I have to work out every single day. That's something I, I believe in. I've got to sweat. No matter how much work I have, I've got to get some energy out. I've got to get those endorphins going through my body for my own health. Good. So, I do that every day. so what did you say is one of the best piece of advice that you've ever received 
that could be judo, could be in business, anything, maybe something that your dad maybe mentioned to you growing up that stuck with you and, and you still, still, still acting on, or what do you think? It's a mindset. So I look at my historically in my family, we were all workers. So my grandfather was one of the hardest working men I know. He, he passed away. He passed away years ago, but he was one of the hardest working guys I know. He, he was a meat cutter. He actually cut meat for a living. So he was a butcher and he ran his own business. And every morning, four o'clock in the morning, he would drive to Boston, which was 30 minutes away from his home. He would go into the meat, meat, meat plants. He'd pick up all this beef in big, big cardboard boxes. He'd pick up all this beef. He'd throw it in the back of his truck. Then he'd go to the produce market. He'd buy all the vegetables from the produce market, you know, uh, lettuce and onions and tomatoes and all that stuff. And he'd throw, he'd load up his big truck with it. He'd drive a half hour north to his business. He'd get to his business 7 a.m. He'd unload the whole truck. He'd cut up all the meat, make hamburger and steaks and lamb and everything else. He'd put it out for display. And six days a week, my grandfather worked from 4 a.m. and got home at 7 p.m. to provide for his family. He was a worker. So he was the guy in our family that we all said, man, you want to be successful? You work like him. You know, my dad got that work ethic from his father. I got it from my father. I passed it down to my kids. You know, so one, if you want to be successful, you can't kid yourself. It has to be, it's going to be hard work that pays off and it's going to be hard work that gets you there. So there's no such thing as being tired. You don't want to do it today. You've got to be a disciplined person who works hard towards your goals. I'll take hard work over talent every single day, every day. You know, and if you look at the athletes that we produced at our school, you look at the, you know, Kayla Harrison's or Travis Stevens or Rick Hans, they're workers. They put in the time, you know, and, and, and they give 100% all the time. So, but the one thing my father, not just the hard work, the one thing my father taught me is that anybody can be beaten on any day. It doesn't matter who they are. You've got to believe that you're the person that can beat him or her. So do not ever sell yourself short and do not ever think you can't do something. It has to be. You're going to make up your mind. You're going to be the person to beat them today. And as long as you pay the price and you earn the right to win, then when the time comes, you go get what's yours. So that mindset is something that I, I, I carry with me today. And it's something that I try to share and give to all of my athletes. Nobody's better than you. If you don't believe in yourself, who is going to believe in you? You've got to believe in yourself before you're ever champion. Otherwise, you can't be champion. So the way, I, the way I teach it or the way that I talk about it is this. You have two people, right? You have one person who dreams. I want to be Olympic champion. I want to be world jiu-jitsu champion. And it's just this goal that they write down on a piece of paper and they think about it once. Then they go about their life. Yeah, they eat healthy here and there. You know, they're coming, you know, they're really hard, but don't ever visualize. They don't ever experience in their own mind 
what it's going to be like to be world champion or Olympic champion. They never see themselves in their own minds achieving the goal, painting the picture. Like it has to be seen and visualized as if it's real so many times before it happens. You've got to visually prepare and mentally prepare for the success yourself. You've got to accept that it's real, accept that it's possible. You have to do the hard training, but I believe that if one person just dreams about it and never thinks about it again, and the other person actually visualizes it happening hundreds of times in their mind, they've seen it, they've lived it, they've experienced it. And I mean for real, where your body goes numb, you get the goosebumps because you're feeling the energy of winning the world championships or winning the Olympic games. I believe that the person who does that all the time, when the time comes for the event, it's as if they've already been there hundreds of times already. Their mind tells their body to go through, go through that path. It's been created for you. Go win, go take what's yours. Versus the other person who goes, oh my God, this is the world championships. I know I wanted this to happen, but you know, what's going to happen if I don't win? And there's a lot of nervousness and there's a lot of energy that they haven't really, they didn't really believe in themselves enough. They didn't visualize it. They didn't experience it. Therefore, they stopped themselves from letting it happen. You know, and, and one of the things that sort of helps me validate this is that when you think about a champion, when you think of somebody who becomes champion, right? Nothing really physical has changed that much from the day they didn't win to the day that they did. Like physically and technically, True. they're not that far off from where they were, right? But once they break through, why do they keep retaining their title? Why do they keep winning over and over and over again? How does somebody become world champion once and then become three-time world champion? Because they already know it's possible. They have the confidence. They believe in themselves. Their technique didn't change that much, change that much right? They they're physically didn't get way stronger, but mentally they're tougher. They know they can win. And the other people have doubt. So they don't. So as long as that champion keeps training and stays fit and doesn't, you know, screw off and, you know, get lazy or fat or whatever, but keeps putting in the time, they remain champion. You know, GSP is a great example. You know, Henry Cejudo now is a great example. Like they just believe they're going to win. They have confidence in themselves and they go do it again and again and again. You know, so I, that's why I think if you believe anybody can beat, be beat on any day, and you pay the price, and you believe in yourself ahead of time, and you visualize it as if it's real, it can happen. Now, let me ask you, just kind of getting back a little bit to your career as a competitor. So during all these times, did you have a chance to have conversations with sports psychologists? Did you read books? How did you get to, of course, training? I always mention about hard work is the root of self-confidence. So of course, you know, as you train more, your confidence starts to grow. But how do you feel getting your mind stronger and stronger? Did you get some knowledge from other people with sports psychologists? What do you say? I actually never sought, I never sought professional help. I never had a sports psychologist work with me during my career. I never did. Mm -hmm. But it hurt. I had heard about the mindset of a champion. I had heard about the power of visualization, you know, from others. And there was one time in my career, it was 1995. 
And, you know, I had already made an Olympic team. I had won some tournaments, but I had never broken through on the biggest stage and the biggest level at the, at the highest, like grand slam tournaments, world championship tournaments. And I had won two bronze medals in a row at major international events. The Turner tournament of Paris is like one of the most prestigious in the world. I won a bronze medal. The next week I won a bronze medal at a European open in, in, in Austria. And I called my father both times and I said, Hey dad, I just won a bronze medal. I was the only American who won any medals at any of those tournaments. We had our whole Olympic team there. I was the only one to win two medals. And my dad said to me, he goes, Jimmy, he goes, you know what? It, bronze medals are great, but it's okay to win a gold every now and then. It's okay to win a gold. Don't be afraid. Like champions do win gold medals too. And it just dawned on me like, He's never happy, right? He's never content with what I did, right? It's not good enough that I'm the best American. It's like, why aren't you the best in the world? Like, why aren't you setting your sights on being a gold medalist, right? So I thought about it and I said, you know, what would it be like to be a champion? And it, it was right down after that conversation. For the whole week, I just started like laying down in my bed at night. And I started thinking about Jimmy Pedro gold medals. As the German Open was coming up the next weekend, it was the, called the World Masters in Germany. And I said, you know what? I started visualizing Jimmy Pedro gold medalist. Jimmy Pedro gold medalist. And I said it to myself over and over and over again. And every night I went to bed before that tournament. I only had one week to prepare. And I laid down and I thought I saw myself beating the best guys. I knew they were going to be in the tournament. I just started visualizing the matches in my head. And I started seeing success. And I stepped up on the top of the podium. And I watched them put the gold medal around my neck. And I put my arm around the two guys that were next to me. I saw the flags going up. I listened to the national anthem. Like I visualized that every day for the whole week, right? That next tournament, that week in Germany, I beat the world champion and I won the gold medal. And I said to myself, there really is something to this thing. Yes. Physically, I hadn't changed. I just trained like I've always trained. Nothing changed physically. Nothing changed with my diet. What changed was my mind. The will and the vision of, of willing it to happen and seeing it before it did. And from that day forward, I started using my mind more and more and more and more. And that's why from that point, from 95 to 99, were my most successful years ever in the sport of judo. Ever. You know? I won a 90, I won a bronze medal in the 96 Olympics. Could have won a gold. I won a, I made a mistake. I know, I know what mistake I made. I was stupid, but whatever the case could have been a gold medalist. Then I ended up being world champion. And I love telling this story because this is how real the mind is. The night before the 1990, well, I was leading up to the 99 world championships, right? Again, no Americans ever, only one American's ever won the world championships in the sport of judo up until this time. And I was feeling so good going into the 99 worlds that I invited my dad. He, could, he wasn't the coach of the national team, but I said, dad, I want you to come watch. I want you to be there. I'm feeling really good. I think I'm going to win. And I want you to be there in the stands to watch. So I invited him out. The night before the tournament, I went to bed. I fell asleep at like 9 p.m. early. Right? It was in England. I fell asleep at nine o'clock at night. <clears throat> While I was sleeping, I had a dream that I won the world championships. And the dream was so real, Gustavo. It was so real to me 
that I was in a full sweat, my whole body soaked the sheets, right? And when I, when I knew I won the world, I jumped out of bed. I sat right up and I looked around the room. I'm like, where the hell am I? Like where I, you know, when you have a dream or something nightmare, you don't know where you are. I woke up and I was like, what just happened? I looked at the clock. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, where am I? I realized I was in London, England. And then I realized you didn't just win the world championships. You haven't even fought yet. I was so depressed. I was upset. Like, oh, it felt so real. <laughs> it felt so real. And, it, and I realized it didn't happen that I grabbed the sheets. I rolled over angry <laughs> and I went back to sleep. But I woke up the next day and what happened? I won the world championships the very next day. So my brain had already like pictured it and had willed it and knew that this was coming. And I think that's so powerful of a story. And it's real. Yeah, man, that's incredible. <laughs> Now, when you look back, if you could give a, advice to the to the younger jimmy when you went all in to start your you know going all in with your your dojo and everything what advice would you tell him not that you want anything different in your life of course but with the experience that you saw you could have a little chat with younger jim and say like hey just watch this here what that would be what would you tell him so a couple of things i would tell myself um number one i would tell myself to train smarter not harder Train smarter, not harder, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, really pay attention to the finer details. And it's not just about the workload. It's about learning all the time. It's about developing. It's about improving. It's about, I always worked on my weaknesses, but I always felt like I probably could have done that more, you know, to become a better all around athlete. I could have spent more time working smarter, you know, in the gym. The second <laughs> thing I would have told myself is convince your father to travel internationally with you and be your coach full time. Because it was a time in my life where my dad got divorced from my mom and financially he couldn't afford to come on trips with me. He couldn't travel with me. He was my coach at home and drilled me and trained me and when I was at home and he did a fantastic job of preparing me physically for battle. But, you know, had my dad been the guy coaching me at every single international tournament, His mind, his strategic mind in helping me make adjustments in matches and things like that, not having him there probably prevented me from winning the world and winning the Olympic Games and winning the world championships even more, you know, because it didn't have that extra person. It was just a national coach who didn't know me that well a lot of times. Yeah. So, you know, having somebody who's that technical and that good with me all the time. Because back then, we didn't have instant access to videos. We didn't have – he couldn't watch my matches. He couldn't give me feedback. I videotaped as much as I could, but it just wasn't the same. We didn't have the access yeah. that we have today. So I would have told myself, convince your father to come with you. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I would have said was, you know, at a much earlier age, focus on your mind. Like train yourself to be not just mentally tough, But like if I had started the visualization stuff way earlier and really had like belief that I could be invincible and it took me my career to learn all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, it's not like I had this stuff early on, you know, it was not till later in my career that I was able to benefit from this, but having a person, if I, if, 
if I was my coach and knew what I knew and I was able to give what I could give to Kayla and to Travis and to Rhonda and to all these other athletes, if I could have, if I had myself, I could have been Olympic champion myself. I didn't have that coach who had been there and had done that and who was there for me. I had to do a lot of my own. Nobody gave me that confidence. Whereas I was able to give my athletes like, listen, I've been here. I've done this. I am world champion. I am two-time Olympic medalist. I'm showing you the path. I'm showing you the way. I'm telling you you're invincible. I'm telling you getting in your head and giving you that confidence that you are the best in the world. Today's your day. Go out there and show everybody. And I used to get in their heads a lot about, is this person better than you? Is this person tougher than you? Did they put in more work than you? No, no, no. What is stopping you? Be fearless. Get out there and get after it and bring me that victory. Like, let's go. And like that positive energy, my athletes felt they really did feed off of that. And when you, they looked like they were on a mission when they fought, if you watch Kayla, you watch Travis, when it came down to the big tournaments, I don't mean every tournament in between. I mean, when they, the Olympic games were on the line, they were fearless athletes and they were prepared to win. And that's what made that help make them champions because they did a lot of the hard work themselves. Incredible. What about in business? What did you say? When you start in your, you know, going all in with your, with your business, maybe a tip that you could tell younger Jimmy. Be smart, be strategic. You know, a lot, especially like in the, in the ghee business, there's a lot of brands that come and go. There's a lot of brands that like they throw, they, they throw lots of money at, at, athletes that they think are going to really move the needle for their company. It's going to help them become famous and help them, you know, sell lots of geese. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, you've got to have good product, you have really good product. You've got to have really good service. You've got to have reasonable pricing. You know, you got to give people value for their money, right? So make good business decisions, you know, create a good company that represents who you are and deliver a good experience for your customer. You know, don't worry about being flashy and growing fast or trying to be the best so early. If you just stick to the basics, I have a good quality product. If something goes wrong, I fix it. I take care of my customers. I ship what I say I'm going to. I deliver all my promises. Like, when am I going to get my product? What's it going to look like? You know, and stand behind everything and make good business decisions. You know, don't do it. Don't let somebody convince you to do something that you're uncomfortable doing if it doesn't make good business sense. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I can't do that. I understand that you might be able to get it cheaper direct from the factory in Pakistan. Or you might be able to, somebody's promise in price. Okay, that's okay. I can provide, I can give you a good, I can deliver it on time. I know that my customer service team is going to look after you. I know that if something goes wrong, I'm going to fix it for you. You know, like these are the things I can do, but it's a, it is at this price. And this price to me is fair. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I have to make money for my family. I have to pay my employees. So, you know, it's, it's about being reasonable, you know, and I think that's what I've always tried to do in, in business and not, not over promise and under deliver. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Under promise and over deliver. Right do you have the habit of reading or listening to audiobooks or anything like that? I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm so, and I, you know, probably that is a flaw or a weakness in my 
you know, in my, um, in my mind that I don't do enough of that. I mm-hmm. do feel sometimes guilty mm-hmm. that I don't listen and I don't, but I feel like my world experiences, I've learned so much from my world experiences, both in business and in sport, you know, that it doesn't take, I don't need self-motivation. A lot of people listen to, listen to read books for motivation. I don't need any motivation. I'm motivated enough as it is already. Uh, I could probably learn some business acumen, mm-hmm. you know, some being more strategic or more doing more planning and things like that. But, you know, sometimes when I do bring in people from the outside that come from big corporate businesses, it's just different. Like the martial arts world is just different. You know, people are, people are genuine. They're real. You know, they see through fake, you know, like, you know, when you come up with like fancy marketing jargon and things like that from martial arts school owners and stuff, they go, dude, what are you talking about right now? Like, just, you're not talking to me. You're wearing a suit and tie and you're putting some fancy marketing out there. But at the end of the day, I see through that. Like, we're, we're real people. We're genuine. We don't need to be talked down to. Like, we're, we're intelligent. We're smart. We run our businesses. Like, We'd rather not pay that much to have all that flair. Just give me good stuff. Just take care of me. You know, like mm-hmm. I remember when I was working for the other company in martial arts and we hired a marketing team, right? And the marketing team came to a big like martial arts expo and they wanted to like see what the market was like so they could put together a good marketing campaign. And they showed up at the tournament and it was a, you know, it was a jujitsu tournament, right? It was a big jujitsu expo with the jujitsu tournament going on and all the boots were there and all the people were there. And I showed up with my, my sneakers and my shorts and my t-shirt and these marketing guys showed up with their like, you know, their, their button down jackets and their suit coats and their fancy shoes and all dressed up. And they were standing in our booth and everybody was like, who the hell are these guys? Mm -hmm. You know, like these guys don't fit in. Like, what is this? And I was like, oh, those guys are helping us with some marketing stuff. But they didn't fit the culture of martial arts. Do you know what I mean? Like they were mm-hmm. too polished. And not to say that you can't get dressed up and when you're going to a wedding or you're going to an exciting event. But when you're in the martial arts arena, people, people want you to be real. Like be the person you are and don't, 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 put, don't sugarcoat it or put some cover on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think I've learned that, you know, they can give you advice, but at the end of the day, I feel like I've been in martial arts my whole life. I've, I'm, I'm, I've learned, I've got my PhD in, you know, in, in who the martial arts school owner is, who the, who the martial artist is, what it is they want, um, how to talk to them, how to treat them. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we want to do business with people that we like. Yes. You know? Yeah. So for all the listeners, we're getting close to the end of the interview. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that uh, after the interview, I reflect on an interview and I create an audio from five to 12 minutes based on my takeaway from the interview and the content to inspire, impact in or improve your life in some way. So make sure that you stick around after the interview. And now my question is, what are you currently excited about? What's going on? I know that it's a difficult time for everyone, but what you got? Got a couple opportunities. I mean, first I got to get my businesses back, right? I have my dojo can't open now until June 29th. So that's kind of a struggle because that's six more weeks of trying to teach online classes and, you know, do zoom classes and run fitness things from home and things like that. So that's going to be like 
three mo- over three months straight, three and a half months straight of delivering this type of experience for our customers. So, you know, that's a little bit of a challenge. So that's the focus now, as well as trying to get, you know, all of our business ramped back up because every business that I'm involved in, the Mats company and Fuji Sports, we do business with school owners, you know, so our business is contingent on every school reopening and every school being successful and needing products. So, you know, we got to wait for the business to come back, you know, and, and as you know, as a school owner, we make most of our money when new students come in our door, right? We, we rely on new people and we can't social distance. So how many new people are going to be walking through martial arts schools over the course of the next couple of months while this pandemic's going on? Probably not a lot. So our industry is going to suffer, right? Our businesses are all going to suffer for the foreseeable future. Um, but, you know, so my number one priority is to get my businesses back up and running and becoming um, successful and trying to hire back as many of my employees as I can, because I do care for all of them. They're like family, you know, so I want to make sure that's the first priority. After that, I want to grow globally. You know, we've got a really good footprint here in the United States. Um, We've got some good partners in Europe right now, uh, one in the Netherlands and one in Germany. I want to expand our European offering and really put some time, energy and effort into Europe because I think that's the next big market for jujitsu and for grappling. So, you know, I want to do some, some good stuff there. And also in the UAE, Middle East, you know, looking at trying to grow in the Middle East and, and being a, a real player. Cause again, that's with the UAE JJ that's exploding and it's going to continue to explode to other countries in the Middle East. So having a good solid footprint and plan for that market is important to me. And then lastly, you know, at some capacity, I think I will be involved at a, a high level at United States Judo because, you know, it really is time for the sport to change, meaning flip the whole thing upside down and start, start doing things vastly different from what we're doing today. Obviously, what we're doing today is not working. The sport's not growing in America um, it's not become, it's not a professional endeavor in America. There's not enough professional gyms doing it as a full-time business. There's no business courses for, for, for people that want to open gyms. There's nobody for them to learn from. There's no curriculums for them to follow. Um, it's become too much about sport. And when it's only about sport and competition, you lose 90% of your people. Because if you think about the number of people that do jujitsu, and the number that actually compete that do jujitsu, I'd venture to guess only 10% of people that actually do jujitsu compete. There's so many people that do it socially. They want to roll and grapple with their friends. They want to stay in shape. They want to go maybe see some tournaments, watch the UFC and MMA together, have an understanding of what's happening, but not a lot of people want to get out on the mat and fight. So why make them? You know, and judo has become a sport where everybody has to compete to earn rank. And it's so geared towards sport and the rules that we've lost the self-defense element. We've lost the, you know, changing people's lives element in America. And I think that's a mistake. And I think the only way to regrow this thing into being something super big and successful is to change the mindset of, of the people that are in charge. Man, that sounds great. One of the things in judo, you know, I, as I mentioned, I started with judo. Judo in Brazil, it's bigger than jiu-jitsu, in my opinion. You know, it's as far as practitioners, I believe judo is bigger. It's, uh, they have so many competitions. And then, some, as you mentioned, the social 
aspect to it in schools and and right. it's uh, it's beautiful to see what do you see it's like the biggest block that's preventing judo in us to grow do you think it's the politics a little bit too inside the judo no it, it, i don't think it's so much the politics everybody wants judo to succeed but there's there's no leaders there's no real strong okay. leadership there's no vision everybody's just go. doing what they do in an isolated group there's no like leader with the vision that says this is what we want it to become these are all the areas that we need to focus on these are the pillars and then we've got to create the soldiers behind it who believe in that vision who then take their area of specialty and grow it and make it a business give these people opportunity to earn a living from the sport yes and make you know because when they become professional salaried people and they're spending all of their time energy and effort on the sport the sport will grow we don't have hardly anybody that's paid in the entire country in the sport, including coaches. So how do you, how do you coach a national team? How do you produce high level athletes? If you're not being paid to do it, it's not your job. When it's a volunteer basis, you, you really can't hold people accountable, right? Oh, he's just a volunteer. I can't expect a lot. Well, then make him a professional. And if he's not the right person, get somebody else to do it. You know, so there's a lot of things. And the other thing is, qualified instructors judo is not accessible in this country there's every town now in america you can take jiu-jitsu if you want pretty much every town there's a jiu-jitsu dojo right there's somebody teaching jiu-jitsu in every corner of america right now it's the same with taekwondo it's the same with karate but in judo you might have to drive an hour an hour and a half to find the nearest judo dojo that's yeah. a problem yeah. because at the grassroots level if you don't make it accessible in every town, parents aren't going to sign their kids up for judo, right? They're not going to drive half hour to, tr to try judo when they can try jujitsu, karate, taekwondo, wrestling, basketball, soccer, baseball, swimming, gymnastics. Every other sport is right in their town. You know what I mean? So until judo becomes an accessible sport for people, it's never going to be big. It's not in school systems. Therefore, the the infrastructure has to be in place as a fabric of American society. Yeah, I was, um, I think in Arizona, we're in 2020, maybe I've heard of three schools that, that I know of maybe. Right. And, and jiu-jitsu, when I came here in 2000, it was probably like five to seven schools. And then I started to promote because there's no events. And then I, I kind of like, what you mentioned about being the leader and that's kind of did when in Arizona as far as like man there's no tournaments this this guy does a horrible job I want to offer a better service so that's what I've been doing for uh 20 years now in Arizona there's over 120 schools in the state right you know and judo is still the same it's probably less you know right. so it's crazy man I it sounds like a that's great... exactly my point that's exactly yeah. my point yeah and lack of competition or even lack of opportunity for competition or seminars or things like that people aren't going to stay in the sport because they get bored you know there's not a lot of diversity for them the same with my school like my kids can't compete against anybody we have to compete against each other you know people get tired if they're not like have the opportunity to participate it doesn't always have to be about the sport aspect of it but there has to be like other things going on seminars clinics to learn from without having to travel, you know, six, eight hours, you know, to stay somewhere. Yeah. One of the yeah. things that I say about jujitsu in uh, 
judo is the same way. I believe that they are incredible personal development tool. It's a tool, right? And everything you don't, the truth is you don't really need to compete to learn jujitsu, to learn judo, to feel more confident, to get in better shape, all that. However, if you want to amplify the power of this tool, the judo or jujitsu competition is an incredible tool to do so because everything you do in the school, but now you're under pressure, multiply, amplify that, multiply by 10, you know, like, well, okay, I'm performing in front of people. Oh, there's expectations now, you know, so everything changed. So I'm a fan of competition because of that, the emotional growth, of course, the technical, you know, but it's so, you cannot even imagine you practicing judo all these years without competing just as a hobby, just inside. You cannot even imagine that, you know, the, the growth that you have from putting yourself out there, challenging yourself for kids, dealing with success, failure, learning that, hey, buddy, you don't, you don't win every day. It's not how it is. You don't, you don't get the result that you want, the time that you want. You know, so those lessons, man, more shorts competition are incredible. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jimmy? I think it's frozen. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? It's okay. Okay. But I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. A hundred percent. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yes. So, man, this has been an incredible interview. I loved it. And I hope the listeners can listen twice or three times because there's so many good points and it's a good one. It's going to give me some, because uh, I always, I reflect on what was said. And then I put a lot of thought in when I share the audio, because I want to impact people even more, get the the idea that maybe I, th I thought was, you know, like, okay, this really caught my attention and then share this with them. So congratulations, man. Incredible, incredible journey. And I, I feel that you still got so much to accomplish as a leader in the judo community, for sure. Mm -hmm. I feel that this, you uh, like, you're the guy to take the hat and be like, okay, I'm going to be the leader. No one told me to do so, but I'm going to do it. Put the leader hat in. I love the idea of having like, uh, conventional or whatever, or training for judo people that they wish, and man, I'd love to make a living with this. And you did it, you know, and it's not easy. And of course, if it was easy, everyone, every judo player would have a, uh, an academy and do it, but it's possible. And you're, and you've done it, which is, you can get a better proof than that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and so oh, a pleasure, to, a pleasure to be on. Congratulations on all your success, and um, uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon at the next, the next upcoming competitions and events when we can. Right? Yes, sir. All righty. So for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Who's? Thank you. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with the seventh degree black belt in judo, Jimmy Pedro. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram TV at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, Jim is a four-time U.S. Olympian and has won two bronze medals, one in 1996 and the other one in 2004. In 1999, he became the second American to win the Judo World Championships. Jimmy owns and operates Pedro's Judo Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts, and is the president of Fuji Mats and vice president of Hatashita Fuji Sports. 
It was a great interview with many useful takeaways. He shared parts of his Olympic journey and the mindset necessary to becoming an Olympic athlete. Incredible commitment. Jimmy shared his challenging transition from his regular job to a full-time business owner and the mindset shift necessary to grow his judo academy. Towards the end of the interview, when I asked him about one of the best pieces of advice that he has ever received, his answer was, the mindset is everything, which inspired me to title the podcast the same. He told the story of how committed and hard worker his grandfather was, which inspired Jimmy's father and consequently, Jimmy himself. His father told him, anybody can be beaten in any day. Don't sell yourself short. They have the mindset that hard work pays off. If you keep putting in the work, eventually the positive results will show up. I mentioned to Jimmy during the interview that I give so much credit to any athlete who makes it to the Olympics. Imagine how hard it is to stay focused, disciplined, and impatient for four years. Now, what about four Olympic cycles? That is insane. That is a different level of mindset. As you already know, sometimes I like to share audio from successful entrepreneurs and high-level athletes to enrich the message. Today, I'm going to share with you Kobe Bryant's Mamba mentality, which perfectly fits Jimmy's interview. If you listen to Jimmy's interview, you'd notice many similarities regarding a winning mindset. In 2019, Kobe gave an interview that was featured on Patrick Bat David's YouTube channel, Valuetainment. It's an hour-long conversation. However, I'm going to share only a 10-minute highlight of the interview with you from the YouTube channel, Motiversity. Check it out. Everything was done to try to learn how to become a better basketball player. Everything. Everything. And so when you have that point of view, then literally the world becomes your library to help you to become better at your craft. So because you know what you want, the world's giving you exactly the information you 100%, need to become better at it. Because you know what you're looking for. So many guys tell stories about your work ethic. Yeah. What was really your work ethic like and for how long did you stay disciplined? Um, well, I mean, I mean, every day. I mean, since you know, 20 years. I mean, it was an everyday process in trying to figure out strengths and weaknesses. For example, Jumping ability. Man, my vertical was a 40. It wasn't a 46 or a mm -hmm. 40, 45. Um, my hands are big, but they're not massive, right? So you got to figure out ways to strengthen them so your hands are strong enough to be able to palm a ball and do the things that you need to do. Uh, quickness. I was quick, but not insanely quick. I was fast, but not ridiculously fast, right? So I had to rely on skill a lot more. I had to rely on angles a lot more. I had to study the game a lot more. And, uh, but I enjoyed it though. So like from the time I was, I can remember when I started watching the game, I studied the game mm. and it just never changed. It's a good separation for me, you know, emotionally to be able to put myself in a place where at practice or when I'm training or during games, I switch my mind to something else. I switch my mode into something else, right? For me, it's the equivalent of Maximus, Desmus, Meridius, and Gladiator picking up the dirt, smelling the dirt, it's go time, right? So that was my mental switch. It was like an actor getting ready for a film. You got to put yourself in that cage. When you're in that cage, you are that character. And then when you leave there, it's something completely different. But when I'm in that cage, bro, don't touch me, don't talk to me. Just leave me alone. How did you get mentally and emotionally so strong where it doesn't bother you? Well, 
you know, it's you got to look at the reality of the situation. You know, like for me, it's not, you know, you, you kind of got to get over yourself. Like, it's not about you, man. Like, okay, you feel embarrassed. You're not that important. Like, <laughs> get over yourself. Yeah, that's where you go. Get over yourself, right? Like, you're worried about how people may perceive you, and, like, you're walking around, and it's embarrassing because you shot five air balls. Get over yourself, right? And then after that, it's okay, well, why did those air balls happen? Got it. High school, year before, we played 35 games, max, right? Week in between, spaced out, plenty of time to rest. In the NBA, it's back to back to back to back to back to back to back. I didn't have the legs. So you look at the shot, every shot was online. Every shot was online, but every shot was short, right? I got to get stronger. I got to train differently. The weight training program that I'm doing, I got to tailor it for an 82-game season mm. so that when the playoffs come around, my legs are stronger and that ball gets there. So I look at it with rationale and say, okay, well, the reason why I shot air balls is because my legs aren't there. I got well, next year they'll be there. That was it. Done. Done. Were there some names that you looked at and says, these three guys are as crazy as I am? I do. I, I, at the time, I deal with what I've referred to as Goat Mountain. I went to Goat Mountain, and I talked to Magic, Michael, Bird, Kim Olajuwon, Jerry West, Oscar Robinson, Bill Russell. You know, so I would talk to them. What did you do? What were your experiences? Michael in particular, he's become my big brother. He's been my big brother since I first came in the league. And what was that process like? So I went to them and started understanding the ins and outs of the game and you know, how they approach things and their level of detail and obsessiveness. And, um, and that's what I did. The players that had that passion but weren't willing to commit their entire lives to doing that, right? It's a choice, right? You have other things. You have family. You have all these other things that you have to do. The game can't really be your number one priority. And so I was looking at that like, man, I'm, this is going to be fun. If, if I'm buddies with you from high school, if I'm a cousin of yours, what happened to our relationship? How, how did that gravitate when you went into the league and you're, you're determined to become the greatest or you're determined to become one of the greatest? What happens to our relationship? Well, it suffers. It does suffer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because and you they, understood that. You well, were okay yeah. with that. Well, yeah. And, and the people that love you, like friends and family, like they know that about you. Got it. So they let you be you. And when you reconvene, you know, you pick back up where you left off. Mm -hmm. But make no mistake about it, everything in between is lost, right? So those long-term relationships, the commitment of time of, uh, you know, uh, taking vacation. Like I see a lot of players take vacations with other players that are close friends. And they'll just take vacations just to take vacations or just hang out, just to hang out. Like I, I, I'm not, I never did that. Why, why, not, why, why, why didn't you do that? Would, well, because when I retire, I didn't want to have to say, I wish I would have done more. I don't want that. You know? I don't want that. You know, you got a lot of people playing their hard-earned money to come watch you perform. 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 It's your job to be in shape. It's your job to be strong enough to perform at that level every single night. And as a competitor, I'm not, I'm not ducking shit. Like, it's not, 
oh my God, my back hurts, I'm sore. We got to play Vince Carter and Toronto Raptors tonight. We actually had this happen. We had a game against Toronto in 2000. Um, and Vince was tearing the league up. Um, my back was jacked, jacked. But like the perception of that, like what? Kobe's missing a game against Toronto and Vince Carter because man, my back was really spasming. But people will be like, what? Oh, he's ducking Vince. Excuse me? No, I don't think so. So I would be in the layup line like, okay, there's a lot of days where, you know, you can rest and recover. Today ain't one of them. Your back can bother you any other day. That shit ain't bothering me today. Wow. We gonna, he going to have to see oh, me man. today. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking at a big investments you got to make what is the decision making process there do you call is there first you do your own research you take this much time you call an advisor is there a, is there a system you no, follow? it's pretty pretty simple for me it's it's do you understand the business is it a business that you can help in some form or fashion what are the barriers of entry to that business and then the entrepreneurs themselves the company that itself right do they have a culture that you believe is sustainable are these leaders people that you believe in? Are they people that are obsessives? And in turn, have they created a culture of obsessiveness? So I tend to look at those four factors and that's it. That's, that's big right there, by the way. I don't know if you guys caught that right there. That's pretty massive right there. Um, same determination. What's your current work schedule look like today? It's, it's, uh, it's different because I personally am not writing every word of the novels. I am not animating the films. What I have to do now is make sure that the people that we bring in, these obsessives that we bring in, are challenging themselves to do the best job that they think they can do. That's what I'm there for, is for them to constantly look in the mirror and self-assess and challenge themselves. If we have a project and you're saying, okay, I can do that, that's not the project we want. The projects that say, I don't know if I can animate that. I don't know how to write that story. I don't know how to do that. Those are the things we want because through that curiosity, you'll reach a level that you didn't think was possible. And so running the studio, that's what I'm doing. You're playing against the Golden State Warriors. Score is 107-109. You guys are close to getting into the playoffs. You know exactly what happens in the game. You go up, you're about to take your shot, and then all of a sudden, boom, yeah. Achilles happens, right? He went and hit the free throws, and then you walked off the stage. Yeah. You got the surgery guy. Right, I went in the trainer's room, my kids are in there. And, you know, they're looking at you and stuff, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, you know, it's all right. Dad's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. It'll be fine. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. As a parent, you got to set the example. You got to set the example. This, this is another obstacle. This obstacle cannot define me. It's not going to cripple me. It's not going to be responsible for me stepping away for the game that I love. I'm going to step away on my own terms. And that's when the decision was made that, you know what, I'm doing it. Doing it. You're a freaking beast, bro. Yeah, hey. I hope you enjoyed the audio. 
it's hard not to get choked up during the full interview because you think, he is gone. That is one of the biggest sports tragedies ever. He left his legacy of a hard worker, overachiever, who developed a bulletproof mindset. Listen to this quote. Quote, the mindset isn't about seeking a result. It's about the process of getting to that result. It's about the journey and the approach. It's a way of life. I do think that it's important in all endeavors to have the mentality, unquote. What about you? Are you focusing on the result of your goal or are you focused on the process of getting to that result? That is a big difference. You may not be an Olympic athlete. However, every day is your Olympics. Every day we should strive to perform to the best of our abilities on and off the mat. Stay focused on the process, stay disciplined for extended period, and be patient because if going after your goals and dreams were easy, everyone would do it. Os. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, but the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.